This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Welcome to Connect with Community Wakato on Free FM 89.0. This week, like last week, doing things a little bit differently. We're working alongside Collaborative Voices based down there in Wellington through Community Networks Aotearoa and playing their show uh, with Sue Barker, that's Charities Law Expert, speaking with Ros Rice about the Charities Report. So sit back and enjoy and we'll be back with you next week. Ka kite. Welcome to Collaborative Voices. I'm Ros Rice and I work for Community Networks Aotearoa and today it's my great pleasure to have in the studio with me Sue Barker. Now if you don't know who Sue is, you're going to know in a minute, but Sue was also the person I interviewed for my last radio show, but today we're talking about something different but aligned, I suspect. Sue, do you want to just introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Sue Barker. I'm um, a lawyer based in Wellington, specialising in charities law and public tax law, and for the last two years I've been on sabbatical as the New Zealand Law Foundation International Research Fellow um, to Karahipi Rangahau Atayo, undertaking research into the question and what does a world-leading framework of charities law look like with a report issued last month? We're going to be talking about some of the recommendations and the conclusions that Sue has come to. And quite frankly, the conversation that Sue and I have, I'm pretty much there with her all the way. All the things that she's talking about, I can't but agree. But it's really important that all of you out there start hearing about what is happening to charities in New Zealand at the moment. And a lot of that is around charities law reform. So I thought let's just start off quickly with the review of the Charities Act. And where the the Charities Act started with Labour, how many years ago? Well, it was a process, actually, it goes back to last century, to be honest. <laughs> and, and and I think it's important to note in that context that before the Charities Act came into force in 2005, charities enjoyed very high levels of public trust and confidence. Yes. Public trust and confidence in charities does not derive from the Charities Act. What the or cha- from charity services. That's right. Uh, what the Charities Act was trying to address was a lack of information. And um, it had a, by the time the, the Charities Act was introduced, or the Charities Bill was introduced in 2004, it had been more than 20 years in gestation. Um, it was preceded by a number of reports. Uh, and, but, but even though it had had all of that preparation, the, the initial bill that was introduced into Parliament was widely regarded as fundamentally flawed. And yeah. it was almost completely rewritten at Select Committee stage in response to hundreds of submissions. And that rewritten bill, plus further substantial changes that were made by substan- uh, supplementary order paper, were, was not subject to proper consultation. No, they they rushed it through, didn't they? And, and it was presented, wasn't it, by uh, Michael Cullen? That's right. It was rushed through under urgency with all final stages happening on one day, 12 April 2005. And concerns that fast law does not make good law were assuaged at the time by the Honourable late Sir Michael Cullen saying 
don't worry about it, charitable sector. We'll give it a proper first principles post-implementation review. In five years? Wasn't it promised in five years? Well, that would be normal. I mean, after after a a big piece of major reform, it would be normal to have a post-implementation review after five years. But here we are nearly two decades later, and we're still waiting. (laughs) Well, they have, they think they've done it. (laughs) <laughs> so we hear, you know, we've all heard about the um, the law reform for uh, Char- the Charities Act and um, many NGOs out there and social services and others have put in um, their um, thoughts to select committees. Yep. And uh, the interesting thing that I've always found about the one that they're doing at the mo- that they've just been doing and that has yet to go to Parliament is that they actually it's not a first principles review. Nothing like can, it. Can you explain what a first principles review would look like? Well, I can. Um, chapter nine oh, in 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 <laughs> in this much time. <laughs> well, you know the key issues for the charitable sector are the three A's: uh, appeals, advocacy, and agency structure. Mm. Because you'll be aware that the Charities Commission was disestablished in 2012 yes. against the strong opposition of the charitable sector. And it moved this, into DIA. That's right. A structure even closer to government than the original Crown Agency structure that was in the original Charities Bill that was comprehensively rejected at that time. Yeah. Well, I think the big worry back when it was moved into DIA, and it's it's proven to, to come through, is that it was an independent agency prior to that. But once it moved into DIA, um, all the decisions of Charities Services came under the direct purview of the minister. Exactly. So the minister could have influence over what charity services did and decided. Exactly. And that's why they put in the, the, the three-person charities registration board in order to act as a check on charity services decision-making. But if, if you have a look at Chapter 7 on the, in the report, I've gone into detail about how that structure is working on practice so that people can draw their own conclusions. Is the structure actually providing independent decision-making? Is the board sufficiently distanced from charity, service, charity services to be able to make to act as an independent check? And, and is the structure working? And if not, what are the consequences for our civil society and ultimately our democracy? So it's really nice that you've put it out all out there in a nice, really way. But my feeling is that it's a rubber stamp board. Well, I mean, in practice, the board just isn't resourced um, to act as the independent check that was intended. And and decision-making is being driven by charity services. And what really bothers me about the current structure is that when the Charities Commission was disestablished, all of the accountability mechanisms that are provided by the Crown Entities Act were removed. Yes. But they weren't replaced with anything. They also removed the education side of charity services, which was a very strong belief of the sector, that if there was going to be a charity service, um, they could at least help the sector with education and, and sharing of information. Well, and, and it was Labour Party policy for the 2017 general election to consult with the charitable sector on whether the disestablishment of the Charities, Charities Commission has resulted in more effective, a, a more effective framework for the charitable sector. That is a key issue for the charitable sector, according to the submissions to the government's review of the Charities Act, which remained in 2019, and mm. it also came through very strongly in our research, mm. and yet the government is refusing 
interesting to look at it. Yes. And, and I think the charitable sector, you know, it's now or never. If we if we get an unhelpful bill, which the minister is saying, it's going to take forever to ever change it. Exactly. If the Canadian experience is anything to go by, it will be forty years. Canada is described as having been on a forty year odyssey. They got unhelpful legislation, and they are only now, several decades later, in the process of turning it around with the with the appointment of the advisory committee on the charitable sector over there. So yeah. can I get back to what I think and you think is, <laughs> and we'll share it, is one of the basic underlying reasons why we're having these problems with government understanding the charity sector or listening to the charity sector. And I th- and, and you put it really beautifully how it's a clash of paradigms. Yeah. Um, you're talking about how uh, the lens that government tends and the charity services definitely tend to look through when they're looking at charity services. Yeah. And put it in a nutshell, they often look at us because if you're a, um, a registered charity, you can become tax-free. Yeah. And so they look at us and go, there's too many charities, we're not getting enough tax dollars from them, rather than looking at them and saying, thank goodness communities are standing up and trying to do the work. Thank goodness that charities are there to help our social structure and to um, thank goodness so many volunteers are out there because otherwise government would have to do it and that would be a damn sight more expensive. Why can't they see that their focus on how much tax they're losing isn't including the added value and how much we actually add? I mean, I think at the moment... We put 2.1 billion into GDP, or 12.1 billion. I'll tell a lie. 12.1 billion into GDP. Why can't they see the advantage of charities rather than always looking at the dis- what they think is a disadvantage financially? Well, I think that's a very good question, and and I would really encourage um, listeners to have a look at chapters one and two of the report in the in particular, because I really go into detail about why charities are so often overlooked. To be honest, I think a large part of the problem is that this current structure of having charity services as a business unit within the DIA, an agency which also funds actually a lot of registered charities, yeah, so it's, there's a, it's conflict, a conflict, conflict of interest. Yeah. That structure structurally undermines public trust and confidence in charities. Look, you know, I've got a really good example. Example, and that is when they first put us in under the international um, financial arrangements and they set up our service performance reports and things like that. They did tours all around the country to bring everybody up to date and they said, thank goodness um, we, we're doing this, but we do acknowledge that this is really difficult stuff for people to understand. So we're expecting it to take approximately five years for people to come to terms with it. So we're not going to pressure people, but you know, over time we know that people will gradually understand about their service performance reports and what they need to put in the financial reporting. And then at the end of the first year, the headlines that went out is something like, and I might have the numbers wrong, 37% of charities have not met their obligations. Um, yeah, it's the first year. And secondly, it doesn't say how amazing that, what is it, 37, 43% of charities have actually already caught on and are doing well in the first year. Mm-hmm. They always put out the negatives. Yeah. They they always say in you know or you always see the big splash in the media or the report out somebody's done something wrong. 
you'd never see the positives coming out, big splash in the media. Actually, the majority of our charitable organisations are fantastic mm. and doing really great work. So, you mm. know, public trust and confidence, I think they undermine it. I do too. And actually, um, I've got an example which um, listeners might be interested in is because after the mosque attacks, um, there was a charity that was overwhelmed with donations and really struggling to, to process the volume that they were receiving. And they were being crucified in, in social media for not distributing the funds fast enough. And um, when an equivalent situation arose in Australia after the bushfires and charities were being overwhelmed with donations, the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commissioner um, stood up for the charitable sector, um, was reported in the media, wrote an article for the Australian, wrote, has a big piece on on the ACNC website saying actually these charities did everything right, the funds will be distributed in due course, uh, everything's fine, nothing to see here. Mm. Whereas charity services said nothing. So this poor charity was crucified and nobody was there to stand up for them. And no. I think that's the distinction between having an independent agency administering the charities legislation. We really need it. And it's also really interesting that the charity services is, is classified as a business unit. Yeah. You know, like yeah, we're all small businesses. Charities are all small businesses, but we're small businesses with a difference and with different purpose and intent. And we don't make profit. So uh, we, we, we might make surpluses that we then uh, have to put back into our organisation. We don't have people out there that we give um, money to, you know, uh, at our AGMs, say this is how much you're going to get. Um, we don't have that kind of uh, system. So we're not really uh, business as most people think. No, no. And, and it really bothers me that, that charity services seems to have this tax focus, that charities have tax privileges, so we have to reduce the number of charities uh, because they're a fiscal cost and some kind of drain on society. It really bothers me because prior uh, to the Charities Act, um, charities legislation or char the, the, the framework for charities was, was administered by IRD, by the tax authority, yes. and it was removed from the tax authority and put into charity services. The, t the Charities Act says absolutely nothing about tax. Charity services has no mandate. And, and I would argue that, uh, certainly from my research, um, it appears that New Zealand actually has the most comprehensive transparency and accountability framework for charities in the world. Now, I haven't researched all countries, but I was asked to research comparable jurisdictions, Australia, Canada, England and Wales, Ireland and um, the US. And certainly from, from, I did look at some other countries as well, certainly New Zealand is the most comprehensive. And I would argue that the quid pro quo for registered charitable status is this requirement to make comprehensive disclosure available on the charities register. It's not, um, uh, you don't morph into some service delivery arm of government and be required to res be restricted to what you can do and what you can say in terms of what a government department thinks is, you know. But that's a risk that we're facing, isn't it? Well, that's it? what's exactly happening in my view, yes. Yeah. So getting back to the charities review, um, <laughs> gosh, we've hardly got there. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to talk about um, uh, the fact that charities, it's DIA that's doing the review 
Yeah, no. And DIA is the organisation Charity Services sits in as exactly. a business unit. Yeah. Isn't that a conflict of interest and why isn't it going out to an independent body like the Law Commission? I know. Well, that's been a problem all along. So actually the, the, the kind of the next step in the Charities Act review was 2016 when the Department of Internal Affairs tried to remove the vast bulk of charities' rights of appeal. And it was they were trying to do it by statutes amendment bill over Christmas. Um, and it was actually by accident that we noticed it and we, we um, raised it with DIA and we raised it with the select committee and ev- right. eventually the select committee took it out of the bill and after that process it became Labour Party policy to conduct a proper first principles post-implementation review of the Charities Act. Which still hasn't happened. Which hasn't happened, no. Mm. So that was their policy going into the 2017 election and they won that election and formed a coalition government with New Zealand First. And... Um, uh, the the new minister, um, Minister Henare, um, wouldn't meet with the charitable sector. We were we were we were given draft terms of reference for the review, um, and we all collectively, the sector group collectively and democratically, said this review does not honour Labour Party policy. Please, can you make it a proper first principles review? But then um, they just basically went ahead and finalised it just in the terms that. that the that the sector group. Uh, hand-picked hand by charity services as, as you know, representatives of the charitable sector. They completely ignored it and, and finalised the terms of reference for the review in this very attenuated form. It's not only the nature, it is problematic that the DIA is tasked with reviewing itself. I mean, I know they'll say that the policy unit is separate from, from uh, charities, but it's not. No. no, not sufficiently. And you should see how many um, people who work in charity services move into other parts of DIA and back and forward. I know. Yeah. I know. And, and actually, the, another problem with that unit is that its its status within government doesn't reflect the independence and importance of the charitable sector, which no. is another way in which it undermines public trust and confidence in charities. But why? If, why? Why aren't they? What is that? Do they want to control, continue to control charities? I think they see that the way to now. Obviously, I can't speak for them, but no. but my impression is that their their vision of what would constitute public trust and confidence in charities is to regulate them, is to regulate what they can say, what they can do, um, and um, basically on the on the basis of the tax privileges, but. You've, you've got a really interesting comment here that um, they describe themselves as a regulator. Yes. Um, and then they get quite upset when we say, hang on a minute. Mm. And they go, oh, you know, we're your friends, but they actually, reality, they are still our regulator. Yeah. Um, but you say they should be referred to instead as the registrar. Yes. Well, if you look at the Charities Act, they are described as the registrar. The Charities Act in no place calls them a regulator. So they've just self they have self-described themselves as a regulator. And the problem with that term, and I know some people will go, oh, it's just a name, what does it matter? But no, actually, names aren't just names. T- terminology does matter, exactly, yeah. because it encourages regulatory overreach. It encourages this mindset of we need to regulate, we need to control, we need to exercise power and control over what charities do and say. And I think that mindset is very unhelpful because... Right. Hmm. But, I, I mean, there's no... Pro- I'm sorry to interrupt, but That's there's right. there's... Nobody has a problem, and in fact, all the, many, many charities thought the idea of charities um, commission was a great idea because there are, for instance, for-profit agencies that file their profits into non-profits so they don't have to pay tax, and we don't like them any more than government does. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why we thought it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. We, um, but you know. Um, the narrative about charities seems to have changed. Exactly. The attitude to charities seems to have changed. But we haven't changed 
that we like for instance I don't even though the new financial um, end of year reports service performance reports are difficult for some people there's no problem with us being um, uh, financially reporting as an accountability measure we have no problem with that so it's not that we're saying bad 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 we don't want to be accountable it's saying stop killing us exactly I mean I, and that's what I think the quid pro quo for registered charitable status is this transparency and accountability it's not ceding day-to-day -day operational control to a government department and that's what we're seeing through their over over overreach um, regulatory <laughs> overreach in yeah. terms of advocacy in terms of social enterprise in terms of there's so many areas where charities are literally being prevented from doing their work and it comes down to a conception of charities as kind of um, restricted to handouts to the poor uh, and that that's how we get this terrible mindset of this concept of charity is an anachronistic Victorian paternalistic yeah. colonialist most charities yes. most organisations and a lot of people don't even understand what it means to be a charitable organisation in the public and we've had we've just put out um, a whole governance online training system and we talk about you know you can be a trust you can be an incorporated society but the idea whether you register as a charity or not is like an overlay over your other um, yeah. your or other legal stance or standing it's not you become a charity and it's a separate thing from being an incorporated society yeah. or you become a charity and it's separate from being a trust you're still the trust of the incorporated society you've just chosen to go into that yes. registration system to for public trust and confidence mm. and um, I'm just wondering that it comes down to another commentary that you made about Myths and misconceptions out yes, there, yeah. and um, how to change? How do we change the narrative about charities? Well, I think this review is critical because if 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 we get, if if we go ahead with, um, I mean, the minister is on record as saying she wants to introduce a charities bill into parliament later this year, and there's some mention in the in the budget about. Um, Increasing the number of charities registration board members to two. Oh, and, um, woo! That's going to make a big difference, <laughs> isn't it? Two more people to rubber stamp. I mean, you know, I don't. <laughs> Sorry, charity I, services people. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't think that adding two members that what what we need is bold structural reform. Yes. I don't think tinkering around the edges is going to make any difference whatsoever. And so we'll continue on this re restrictive paradigm, which is which is structurally undermining public trust and confidence in charities. Because actually, um, when New Zealand law is applied correctly, and I'm thinking particularly in this respect about the Crown Forestry Rental Trust case, the Latterman decisions, which went all the way to the Privy Council. Can you explain that just briefly for people who don't know about it? Yes, well, the Crown Forestry Rental Trust is, is um, it does have a long history, and actually I go into detail about it in the report in because the report. I was concerned that people... It was the, the decision was being overlooked or the decisions were being overlooked because it is quite a complex factual matrix or factual background. And so I've, I've and it's not all um, clear from the case itself. So I've set it out in some detail in the report. And, and what I'm saying in Chapter 3 and also Appendix B, I think it is, is that actually if you apply New Zealand law, the definition of charitable purpose is not so limited. Charities are actually um, able to be innovative. They're able to advocate in furtherance of their charitable purposes. They're they're um, uh, they're able to be key integral to the solution rather than they symptoms of the risks. problem. Exactly, and they and they reach into communities like exactly. government can't. Exactly. I mean, 
I know. If you kill the charities, yeah. what's left? And if you stop them from doing that, I mean, that is what makes them distinctive and valuable. Their independence is their hallmark. It's what, yes. it, what distinguishes them from government. And if you stop them from doing that, well, you, you basically undermine them completely. And, and that and, goes down to the advocacy issue. Yeah. Because what is a charity if it's not advocating for the exactly. people that it works exactly. for? Yet charities are not supposed to be advocates. And it's how you, it's how, uh, people describe what an advocate means. What an advocate means to someone in government is completely different to what an advocate means yeah. um, to somebody in a charity who's speaking on behalf of their people. But it seems like um, a, 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 a clench on the freedom of speech. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, it really bothers me that there's a, there's a, a perception out there that charities shouldn't do advocacy because Why absolutely not? they should. That, yes. is, that is what they're there for. <laughs> that is how people come together for a shared purpose. Yeah. We're no, you know, and, and to get cut through in, in this current climate, or, or you know, no individual is going to have the cut through that a charity has. That's why people come together. Charities should be most of the key significant changes that have been achieved over the centuries, including abolition of slavery, universal suffrage, you know, not smoking in cars, you name it. It's, it's, um, charities have been integral to these um, social change um, developments that have occurred. And to stop them from doing that, we are basically cutting off our democracy at the knees. Yeah. So um, the paradigm that we're looking through uh, where we see charities' independence as their hallmark, um, it, it we should have a right to self-determination. Well, what the, the bill that I've drafted in Chapter 9 of this report, uh, I recommend, and I've actually set it out in some detail, which is why the report is so long, and I understand that it's book length, but I do <laughs> think that charities are worth it. And what mm. I've done is really tried to amplify the submissions that were made to the government's review. And, and basically, it's very clear, in my view, that we need an enabling framework for charities. This process of restriction, regulation, for regulation's sake is absolutely not working. We need to enact an enable framework, enabling for framework for charities. Government needs to invest in the charitable sector and get out of the way. Yeah. And that's what this report is intended Same. to do. And the, and the, the, the draft bill in Chapter 9 is, an, is, is a bill that would amend and restate the Charities Act um, with a view you know, to enacting an enabling framework. Yeah. So, so my final really um, you know, shocking comment is, <laughs> and, and you can respond to it how you wish, but it seems to me that they're becoming almost authoritarian about charities and... Well, that's what really worries me is that uh, we were seeing increasing authoritarianism around the world, and I appreciate that you know you know life is very uncertain. The world is in a very uncertain place, not only with climate change, pandemics, wars, you name it. And, and in those sort of circumstances, people often look to strong leadership. But actually, um, it, the real solution to these types of issues is social cohesion. It's coming together. It's strong it's communities. Exactly. People. And, and, and the charitable communities, exactly. that's where charities live exactly. and, and um, are embedded. Yeah. And, and, and stopping them from doing that, which is what I think the current framework is doing and what I fear any new bill is going to make worse, is actually completely uh, undermining our democracy. So strong words there, folk, and um, <laughs> I can't recommend enough that you take a look at this report. It is a big report, but you can pick and choose your chapters that you want to read. Where do people go to pick up your report? 
Uh, well, it's on the New Zealand Law Foundation website. It's on my website as well, Sue Barker Charities Law. And if you email me, I'm happy to email you the link. Um, it's it's basically a book, you know, but people still read books, don't yeah. they? <laughs> <laughs> so what's your email? Uh, Susan.Barker at charitieslaw.co. And there's no.nz. It's just.co. And um, I really would encourage the charitable sector to come together because it's up to us. We're going to get the, le- the legislation that we deserve. And if we value our democracy, we have to come together. It's now or never. Yeah, it's um, once, this, once the charities law is passed, trying to get anything different. We've just experienced that with the Incorporated Societies Act. So, uh, folk, take a look at this. Take a look at this report. It's huge. It's backed by the uh, Law Society. Um, it's taken Foundation. Law Society Foundation. It's taken two years to put together. But man, oh man, um, I can't tell you strongly enough. Take a look at this and then um, start responding. Start responding. So thank you, Sue, for all the work and for the exciting conversation. And um, honestly, I'm sure the people on the Charities Commission are lovely people and um, on the board and um, and everybody's doing their best, but um, they are run by law. So they're not regulators. It's not in the law that they're regulators. Remember that. Okay. And is that a good note to finish on? <laughs> Thanks so much, Roz. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Thank you. Thank you. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.